Previously on Talking Space, episode 406, part 1. Our guest tonight is a software engineer for Northrop Grumman, the flight software lead for NASA's L-Cross program, executive producer of Untied Music, a public speaker and does outreach from school kids to space ops, Emery Stagner. Everybody just goes into a room and talks about whatever they want to talk about. This is great. How cool is that? And so I, I attended space up. And where else can you go to go ahead and throw triples at each other? And now, following the intro, part two of episode 406 of Talking Space, recorded Monday, February 20th, 2012. One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. They brought giveaways. They brought out the space up DC. They were, it was just amazing. They must have brought eighty tribbles. Yeah, they did. Uh, I mean, it, there was just a lot, and they had a triple throwing contest, which they've decided that they would never do again. Um, because <laughs> as 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 uh, as the people on uh, Twitter will tell you, tribbles have hard insides. Yes, they do. <laughs> they're, and they're, they hurt. <laughs> and they hurt. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Dave Masson of Masson Aerospace actually got beamed in the eye with one, and uh, yeah, that was that was not pretty. <laughs> no, it was not that pretty. Was not pretty. Oh man, I mean, the, Dave first off is a cool guy. It was, just, it was the second time I ever met him on uh, at that event, and I was like, oh no, God, that that just I, my yeah. heart for him. I swear. Although after the event, it's really actually pretty hilarious to watch the video. God, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, Think Geek has a video which um, we will link to or post in the show notes. Just the description of it is, as you might expect, it's uh, Think Geek brought 147 tribbles to space up DC and started a triple fight. As you might suspect, this quickly led to aerosolized triple fur, bruises, and our apologies. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Uh, yeah, they swore they'd that never do it again. About right, it, was, yeah. it was pretty hilarious. It was, um, and mayhem did ensue. Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, that was really hilarious. And and I'm I'm like, I, it's pretty funny because I was like on the front line, and and I'm six foot four. I'm not like you know people were not like you know I'm not like easy to throw over. <laughs> um, and but I was trying to toss them, you know, kind of lost to them gently, not you know nail people with them because they they are fairly heavy and and they. They, they brought the ones, I think they have two different kinds. They have ones that are just like a puffball, and then they have other ones that have uh, uh, batteries and um, sound effects inside of them that make the, both the triple purring noise and the triple I hate Klingons noise. Um, and so they had, we had them all set on the, the Klingon noises, and so whenever you pick one up, like, it was <laughs> 147 drills, like, <laughs> <laughs> 
is so funny. Yeah, amazingly, I, I, I got to see one of those during uh, some of the post-STS-135 activities, and those things seem kind of painful if you get hit with one. Yeah, uh, and you were talking, too, about uh, the folks over at Think, Think Geek. Uh, I just want to put in a real quick plug for a friend of mine over there, Stephanie Collins, who's just probably one of the best people you ever want to meet. Um, she's just, just too cool. She really is. And, uh, she really put a, a good show. I think she, she was responsible for that one. I think she's also been responsible for a couple of the, the, the tchotchkes that I uh, think he, he has given out as far as the, the tweet ups are concerned. So she's, she's really good. Yeah. They've been a huge supporter. It's been real fun. Yeah. So, um, there are several space ups coming up. Um, there, uh, the space up Houston is the, uh, let me get the dates right. 24th, 25th, is it the right? This is this coming this this coming weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday. I may have those dates wrong of uh, February 2012. Um, and then um, the next one that I know of is uh, Space Up DC is actually going to be, I believe, in uh, mid to late April of this year, uh, about the same time as Yuri's Night. I, I don't think that they've put out an official date yet. And I just saw uh, a post on Facebook for Space Up Kansas. There is Minnesota, one in Europe. I don't even know where the one in Europe is going to be exactly. I have to look that San up. Fran- San Francisco, uh, I think, is coming up this spring. Uh, so there's several around the country, and even in Europe, we've, we've exported this now uh, across the pond. So... Uh, I'm I'm a real fan of this because it gets people together who are, uh, you might be just a little bit curious. They're very inexpensive to go to. Go and talk to people. You will meet some of the most fascinating people. Uh, you can imagine. I mean, really, um, everything from uh, artists. Uh, there's uh, one gal who goes, uh, Cassie, who goes by Craft Lass. Yeah, who's she's a, a great folk artist uh, and singer songwriter. She's um, our fifth Beatle here, so <laughs> yeah, she really is. She's a she's a blast. Um, uh, her, her she's got one particularly famous song called "Bake Sale for NASA," which I think we probably need to resurrect in light of the current uh, budget uh, ongoing budget discussions. <laughs> and uh, yeah. but you're going to meet aerospace professionals. You're going to meet people who are just space enthusiasts. Um, I, I I'll be at Space Up DC, uh, and you can come and talk to me, and I'll. I'll draw your ear off, as you can tell. I'll talk about anything. <laughs> you kind of open up the door, Emery, for something. Oh. As, as far as the, the budget's concerned, um, I, I mean, the, my first take was, you know, I was a little alarmed about the 2013 budget, and quite frankly. I mean, I was, I was just wondering, what your, if, if you can, what thoughts you had on it. The, the way that they're talking about kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, is is really not in the best interest of either uh, NASA or, you know, the United States as a whole. Um, they're, they're talking about, for instance, uh, taking money away from some of the planned planetary science missions, both this year and in out years, in order to pay for some of the other kinds of stuff that people want to do, um, NASA's funding is staying actually pretty flat. Uh, it's only going down by like a, a percent or something. It's only going down by um, maybe a, a couple hundred million out of um, 17 billion. Um, but the way that they're doing that, I think, is 
uh, you know, they're pulling out of Mars missions. Um, they're pulling out of uh, collaboration with the European Space Agency, specifically on two different Mars missions. Uh, we have we have been over the last uh, 20 years or so very consistently sending rovers and orbiters to Mars. And essentially, we've been alternating a rover and orbiter and a rover and orbiter. Um, and you only really get to launch to Mars uh, every two years. And, and so you've got to start putting stuff in the pipeline. I mean, it takes six, sometimes these complex missions take six, eight or more years in order to develop something and get it ready to launch and go to Mars. And so if you don't keep things in the pipeline, if you don't keep starting new missions and working on them and getting them ready to launch when the launch windows come up, we're going to lose the momentum that we have on learning about Mars and learning how that we might live on Mars as, and, and use those kinds of resources in, in future uh, development in order to better life here on Earth, which is what it's really all about. Um, so yeah, I have a I have a big concern about that. Um, they are continuing to fund uh, the ver the new very large rocket design called the Space Launch System, derogatorily called the Senate Launch System, um, which I think is probably more appropriate. Um, and that's uh, not uh, one of my favorite uh, things that NASA is doing right now. Um, and uh, I mean, it's costing billions of dollars a year just in design uh, for a new large rocket that, frankly, I hope I'm wrong, but I think will probably actually never fly. So, uh, I have a, yeah, I have a problem with that. And I, and I think that we, have, we still have a window of opportunity for every person in America who thinks that the space exploration programs are important. The research and development and exploration that we do, I think, is critically important to keeping us moving forward as a nation. You, you look at nations that historically in the past that have stopped exploring and that have stopped researching, and those nations have stagnated and fallen away. And we can't afford to do that here in the United States. We need to keep pushing out new frontiers, finding out new information, finding new ways to frankly, make money. We have an opportunity here to, to contact our congressmen, senators, and say, we don't want this kinds of cuts to happen to these kinds of exploration programs. It's too important. We have to keep on this track that we've been on for 20 years. Don't cut the Mars exploration. Don't cut the ties with the European Space Agency and these kind of research projects. Um, you know, we are, we are the world leader in space development and space exploration, and we need to remain that way. And the only way we can do that is by making these kinds of investments. They're not talking about a lot of money. And they're talking about less than a billion dollars. They're talking about, uh, I mean, NASA only has six-tenths of one percent of the national budget as it is. We're not talking about, uh, we're talking about a half a billion dollars. I mean, it's not just not that much money. I mean, I mean, the the you know the statistic came out last year that the Department of Defense spends NASA's budget every year air conditioning tents in the Middle East. They spend 17 billion dollars a year air conditioning tents in the Middle East. So you can't tell me that we don't have a half a billion dollars 
in order to continue exploration and, and continue our conversations and our, and our research and development with European partners. You just can't tell me that the money isn't there. It's the national will that isn't there. Yeah, yeah I, that, that's, yeah, bingo. I mean, do you see us seceding the, the stage here in a, in a leadership role and just sort of like letting somebody else take point? Or, or where do you see the U.S. going from this point? Well, there's plenty of other places where we are definitely the leader far and away uh, in, in the research and, and development and outreach and, and exploration systems that we're doing. Uh, the one thing that they, they picked on to talk about cutting, I think, is a very, very poor choice. Um, and I, don't, I think NASA's budgets are so thin at this point that if you talk about, you really can't talk about cutting anything. I, 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 respond, I respond to... to blog posts on places like space.com and and there was a lady there uh, who was saying you know NASA is wasting all this money and we shouldn't be spending on this we should be using this money somewhere else and I was like well let's see you like your you like your satellites uh, you like your cell phones you like your GPS uh, you want kids to be inspired to learn math and science um, you want to know uh, you want you know farmers to be able to get information from uh, satellites in order to look at their crops. Uh, what, what part of NASA do you think gets spent in space? It really all gets spent here. You know, the only thing that goes to space is a couple of hundred pounds of aluminum and, you know, it's just not, the cost of the materials is just not that much money. It basically all gets spent in personnel and people uh, down here on Earth. You know, it's spent in, in engineers and, and, uh, and mechanics and and, you know, that money even goes to, you know, people who have to support the commodes, you know. I mean, it's everything. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about cutting here? And, and where do you think the money, you think that money's going to come from NASA? And, and where's it going to go? It's not going to go anywhere. If it's cut from NASA, you know, your taxes will go down by a half penny on a dollar if NASA right. to exist. Right. It's not, it, it's not, somebody described it recently, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, if the whole program disappeared tomorrow, you you know, all the world's problems are still going to be there, and the entire NASA budget, even if it was absorbed by all this, really wouldn't mean a drop in the bucket to a lot of these problems. So right, you you can't just decrease the suck. Sometimes right. you have to also increase the awesome. Right, exactly. And if you don't know what that phrase I like means, that. go look it up on YouTube. Yep, I like <laughs> that, was that. Great video. Yep. You can't just spend money to try and, and just solve the world's problems. You have to be able to inspire people and give them something to live up to, not just something to get you know, up from yes. the bottom. You know, you've got to yeah. pull people up from the top as well. You've know, you got to have positive and negative. You've got to have inspiration as well as perspiration. You've got to have it all. Yep. You know? And NASA provides so much inspiration to so many people. Uh, and if you think it doesn't, Go to an event where there's an astronaut and kids. Oh, God. They yes. will. I mean, they, you know, a, the guy walks out in the blue flight suit, and it's like an electric moment where yes. kids will just, like, flock to him. I mean, six-year-olds and 30-year-olds. I don't care if you're a 30-year-old kid. Oh, I'm 50. But, um, <laughs> you know, if there's an astronaut to go talk to, I will go talk to them. Yes. You know, um, NASA's holding tweet-ups. Uh, and I've gotten to be part of several of those, um, and, and I've been down to a couple at, at NASA headquarters now. I got to I got to go meet uh, Ron Garan just this last week. Ah, 
Uh, oh, that was great. Uh, I wish it could have <laughs> gone to that one. That was fun. Uh, the, you know, the best one I went to was uh, was the second one, and that was the one with Doug Wheelock, uh, Astro Wheels on Twitter. Man, what what an amazing guy! Uh, you know, I, here I am. I'm I'm a 50 year old space nerd. Okay. Uh, and I'm sitting there with my laptop open and my, my droid and I'm, and I'm, you know, I got a camera and I'm like, you know, I'm doing the Twitter social interaction thing and, and tweeting out little quotes that he says and stuff like that. And I get about 20 or 30 minutes into the, into the event, which lasted by the way, two hours. He was, he was just an amazingly gracious with his time. He's a, he's a compelling speaker. And you know, as a public speaker, somebody's got to be pretty compelling for me to really get to really suck me in. Well, man, he just sucked me right in. At one point, I literally closed my laptop lid, put down my phone, crossed my arms, and just started listening to the guy because I was like, I'm missing this. <laughs> yes. and, he, and he's just so engaging and compelling. Um, and then we got to meet him at, for the uh, STS-135, uh, the final launch of the shuttle mission launch down in uh, Florida, which I got to be part of, uh, which was awesome. And, and Doug was uh, supposed to be, he's active duty, actually, um, in Army Air Forces. And he was supposed to be in Afghanistan. And they screwed up his orders, and he had like a week's leave. So he was like, oh, I'm going to the shuttle launch. <laughs> <laughs> so he showed up for the tweet-up, and he didn't like have an agenda. The other astronauts that came and talked to us, Mike Massimino and some other guys, they had places to be because they, they knew they were going to be there, and so they were, like, scheduled for interviews and things. Well, Doug didn't have any of that, so he hung out with the tweet-up for, like, hours. It was great. It was just so much fun. There's, I've got video of him out at the RSS rollback. He stayed out there with us, like, the whole time for, like, two hours out at the, at the rollback and talked to everybody, and he's just really a gracious guy. But, yeah, you put somebody like that in a, in a room, uh, you know, and... These guys are the cream of the crop. I mean, they are the they are the creme de la creme of the human race. They are just fantastic people, uh, men and women. I, I would I would really think I'd die and gone to heaven to go meet Katie Coleman, or or Peggy Whitson, or or any you know any of the uh, the, the really you know, just very fantastic people that that NASA hires to do that kind of work. NASA doesn't currently have a human rated launch vehicle. Right? They can't currently send their own astronauts into space. They have to send them up on a, on a Russian rocket. And they just had applications for a new astronaut class. Right. They had the second largest group of applications they've ever had. It had 6,300 people applied for like 15 astronaut positions. I, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask uh, Ron Garin. I didn't get a chance to. I said, what, what inspires me? Why are there 6,300 you know, people <laughs> who are currently doing that? What, you know, why, why do we have this huge influx of astronaut applications? Just kind of curious why what he thought his take on it was, but uh, unfortunately, I didn't get answered. Yeah, I mean, here, here we are. Good point. I mean, here we are. This, you know, this is uh, February twentieth, uh, two thousand twelve. We are sitting here at the fiftieth anniversary of uh, John Glenn's Mercury flight, and this is something we can't duplicate right now because we right. don't have a spacecraft. Right. <laughs> Fifty years later, I mean, it's 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 insane. Yep. Now, the good thing is that some of the ways that NASA is currently working uh, are with their commercial providers and trying to commercialize the launch operations to low Earth orbit, uh, that is fantastic. Um, 
and and I'm a, an enormous supporter of that. And there are currently five manned vehicles in development. We've never had more than one in the United States, and and now we have five that are you know people are people are bending metal. They're building hardware. Uh, SpaceX has already flown uh, their capsule once uh, around the Earth and recovered it. That's the first time a commercial company has ever done that. The only people who have ever done that before were like three different countries. You know, no commercial entity had never done that. Uh, and they're getting ready to launch uh, another, uh, this time, a launch a flight up to the uh, International Space Station, and then they'll, again, they'll recover that capsule and bring it back in. Uh, I think that they're currently slated for mid to late April. That, yeah, um, that's that's what I'm hearing as far yeah, as uh, that's currently it, but that might get even that might get pushed back even further. Yeah, they, but they we'll, they we'll have to see. Have a firm date yet. Yeah. Um, we'll have to but see. so you've got SpaceX who's building a rocket and a capsule. Lockheed Martin's building a capsule. Boeing's building a capsule. Uh, Sierra Nevada is building a uh, a lifting body wing vehicle, and and. Uh, Blue Origin is building a, uh, what are they calling theirs, a biconic capsule? Yeah, something like that. That's I'm not really up on, uh, I'm not really up on aerodynamics, but it's another, it's a lift, another lifting body. Yeah, uh, that, that's what New Shepard uh, is, is being built. So, right, so there's, there's five uh, vehicles in development. Uh, NASA's currently working with United Launch Alliance to man rate the Atlas V. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any reason that they couldn't man rate the Delta IV or the, even the Delta IV Heavy. So there's there's two rockets right there. Uh, Boeing is, no, I'm sorry, Orbital Science. There's another one, right? Orbital Sciences is working on one. So there's six capsules, six manned vehicles. Uh, Orbital Sciences is also working on a rocket to not only take um, equipment and uh, and um, provisions up to the International Space Station, but also eventually to launch people. Uh, so there's three rockets and six capsules currently in development. That's a... Man, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a lot. I can't even keep track of them all on my fingers, you know? And that's yes. not even talking about... You know, we're not even... We're only talking about going to the International Space Station. We're not even talking about a private space station which is also in development, you know, and they've already flown two test articles, and that's, uh, oh, I just lost Yeah, name. Bigelow Aerospace. Bigelow Aerospace, I'm sorry. Yes. I, in fact, um, if you go to my untiedmusic.com website and scroll down a little bit, you'll see something that says 20 years. If you click on that 20-year link, you'll see that my original wedding rings um, are actually on the Genesis 2 module. Oh, that's sweet. I'm pretty sure I have the first set of uh, wedding rings actually in permanent Earth orbit, <laughs> but I've not been able to get that. I've not been able to get that through to uh, uh, all the way out to the um, the Guinness Book of World Records folks. <clears throat> well, I hope they're listening here. I hope so too, <laughs> for lots of reasons. But yeah, that's it. One thing that we keep talking about is you know your your website, Untied Music, and you know, that's one thing. On top of basically working on spacecrafts, you also make music. And I've heard you sing at STS-135 at an event afterwards. And you can really sing. Yeah, i got to give you great credit for that. You are well, an awesome well, musician. So how do you tie music and space together? Um, well, I've done a few little things. Um, 
the associate program director for the Elkhart's mission, his name is John Marmy. Uh, John has written a bunch of really great songs um, about the Kepler mission and about Elkhart and some other stuff. And, and the mission, the, 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 uh, let's see, the, the song that he wrote for uh, Elkhart was called Water on the Moon. Um, and that got, that got quite a bit of uh, kind of noise around. And, and, um, and there's a video, if you, if you hunt around a little bit there, on YouTube, there's a video of John and I and one of the other program managers actually playing that at a live event where I'm playing, I'm playing bass guitar and, and uh, two other guys are playing guitars. Um, actually, all three, of the, all three of us are playing my guitars. There's, there's three guitars that are being played. They all happen to belong to me because, you know, I, just, I had them, so I took them with me. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I don't really interrelate those too much. Um, I, uh, I play on Sunday mornings for my church. Um, and uh, uh, I, I work with a lot of, uh, it just it kind of fell out this way. I work with a lot of early music groups, uh, people who do um, medieval and renaissance music uh, one of my other quirky things that I do is medieval reenacting. So I go out and uh, dress up like uh, Robin Hood or, uh, or D'Artagnan and, uh, you know, get to wear fun clothes and carry swords and do bows and arrows and that kind of stuff. So I've, I've met some uh, really fantastic musicians. I've worked with a group called Volgemut, who does uh, German bagpipes and big drums. And, and uh, they're, they're a real, uh, they play Renaissance festivals all over the world. They're, they're a great bunch of guys, and I've done a bunch of albums with them now. I've done like four albums with them. Um, and uh, I work with another group here in the Baltimore, D.C. area called the Homespun Kelly Band. They're a, uh, they're a fiddle band. They do jigs and reels and Scottish, Irish, and, and, uh, and uh, Canadian, uh, you know, kind of uh, homespun, what they call homespun music. And um, I played a little bit with them, and I've recorded two albums with them, and I'm actually working on remixing their first album right now. So um, just a... Uh, I don't know, do a little everything. Uh, I played in a progressive rock group for a while called Ezekiel's Wheel. And we did uh, all kinds of bizarre music. Uh, it, was a, it was a real fun group. You've actually been uh, in the music world longer than the software world, it sounds like. Well, no, actually. Well, yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Um, <clears throat> I have sitting to my left, sitting on the floor, I have the first computer that I ever owned. Actually, that my brother owned. He bought it, uh, and, and I, I'm the one who really took off with it and really learned it. I have a Commodore PET sitting on the floor next to me. Oh, my, uh, my God. For, any, but <laughs> for anybody who's uh, in the 1970s vintage uh, would, uh, would recognize that as really one of the first computers uh, that really became available. Um, it's an a, a 8-kilobyte, 1-megahertz processor with a... Uh, a little tiny screen that would do um, 40 characters by 25 lines, right. and um, and it came with built-in uh, built-in basic interpreter, and you could save your programs out to a cassette drive. Right. I still have that computer here, and it still runs. <laughs> <laughs> and if it helps, makes you feel any better, I still have my TI 994 a Well, that's <laughs> so. a, that's a pretty cool one too. I have a. Uh, I have sitting back here behind me in the studio. I also have a uh, a Commodore 64 in the original box. Uh, have an Atari 800 floating around somewhere. Wow! And uh, I, that never really worked. I picked that up at a yard sale for a talk or something. 
Um, and I, oh, I have a later version of the Commodore Pet here too. That's a 16 kilobyte and with a full size keyboard. Ooh, wow. And, wow. And, uh, and Who's, flop, these are single amazing. density, single sided floppy drives would store 160 kilobytes on a floppy drive. We were, thought we were cat meow. <laughs> these weren't the big eight inch ones, were they? No, they were the fives, but not okay. the eights. I later had a computer that uh, that had had eights on it that was a CPM86 machine. Okay. And then I kind of cut my teeth from that um, on a uh, on an Apple II and later on a, uh, a Data General Eclipse S330. Wow. Which was, uh, yeah, it's the Wayback Machine. That yeah. was uh, the machine that we had in college. And... Uh, that's the machine. Uh, there was a book written about the development of that machine. It's called The Soul of a New Machine. It's a pretty famous uh, book in, in the computer science world. So uh, I worked on that data journal Eclipse. Actually, I really loved the Eclipse uh, command line interpreter. It had really fantastic uh, iterating options, things that you can't even do in Unix these days. It was just really cool. Your your just real quick your 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 handle on on Twitter Vax Headroom. What's a I haven't heard. I know what a Vax is. I used to work on one. Could you kind of tell what a kind of explain to everybody what a Vax is out there? Uh, a Vax <laughs> was a, a mini computer of the of the day, um, twenty five to thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's the VAX stands for Virtual Architecture Extended. Um, and it was a, a virtual memory machine, so if you had you know, so, many, so much memory in the machine, it would actually page your memory out the hard drive, so it looked like you had more memory available to you than, than you physically had available. Right. And uh, I worked on VAXs for years. Um, I worked on uh, database systems, and I worked on a, uh, a system for, uh, for instance, processing hospital insurance claims. It was a, like a real-time system that sat in an office, and right. would get insurance claims that would come in from uh, hospital business offices around the country, and then we would process those insurance claims and send them off to the hospital, uh, the insurance companies. So uh, I wrote uh, with a uh, four-man team. We wrote uh, some really fantastic software that ran on the Vaxes that, that did all that in-house processing. And uh, and then later, when I went to work for Litton, I worked on Oracle databases and did you know things like parts list databases and. Uh, a database that kept track of uh, wire harnesses and stuff like that as databases, and then um, I moved. I haven't I haven't been on a Vax in quite a while. Although I actually do still have a Microvax in my office. So. Okay, I just thought you know I'm I'm a big fan of the uh, the old Ma the old Max Headroom series. I just thought that was a, such a cool handle. Yeah, I, somebody actually somebody at the at the hospital insurance processing claim company CIS Technologies had, had come up with that and we kind of used that as a joke because we were using Vaxes there and uh, and when I got on when I got on Twitter I I, uh, I thought well that that would be kind of fun and now actually it's really pretty cool because everybody just basically calls me Vax which is really kind of fun <laughs> got another uh, tech question here uh, I don't know if you know where I work but I work for the FAA and I haven't okay. worked personally with uh, what may have been a project you were part of but with Litton uh, uh -huh. I believe that the FAA had in their inventory a switch called an ICSS Type 2. Was uh -huh. that the system you were around? It may have been I was working on the uh, Yeah, I was working on the LB3080, the large baseline 3080 voice switch. Um, and that was their really big system that went into Chicago O'Hare, Dallas-Fort Worth, 
um, and the Taiwanese uh, Royal Air Force, as well as a derivative of that, went into all the aircraft carriers. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's an intercom system that the, uh, the um, air traffic controllers can use. The guys who sit at like the big radar terminals, it's not the radar terminal, but it's the thing that, the, that their headsets are connected to. Yep. Uh, and it allows them to talk to radios, telephone lines, and intercoms, like, you know, transparently. Um, uh, oh, I know where else we have one. Uh, the FedEx offices are actually uh, the, the main FedEx uh, distribution center is run with a, a 3080 switch. Or at least it was. It's been quite a while. I've been a yeah. Well, the FAA probably still has uh, some of the same ones because it's a tendency when we buy something, it stays in place forever. All those switches tend to upgrade when control towers upgrade and and yep. they gradually uh, get changed out. But there's one at Gainesville. It's a what I call a Type 1 ICSS. can't even remember what that stands for, but switch. Uh, <laughs> made by made by Denro that's been there for yeah. at least 20 years. Right. Um, uh, Litton bought Denro right before Northrop bought Litton. And so that group that I worked for that did the <laughs> switches actually went to Denro up to Gaithersburg, Maryland, and then uh, they have subsequently moved back down to uh, the Laurel, Maryland area. And uh, I do talk to those guys occasionally. And we actually talked about incorporating uh, their voice switch with the ground satellite ground system that we use because they're now now basically using all voice over IP. Um, and so it would be just really great to have your, your satellite ground control system uh, have your voice switch already built into it. It would be really pretty cool. So, um, And today, you know, um, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually still kind of working on a derivative of the Elcross uh legacy program. We basically took the hardware and software from that and are making a product line out of it for Northrop Grumman. Uh, we're, we're looking to, uh, to put that out there as a, as, a, as a regular product line. It's in the, um, there's a, a catalog of uh, satellite systems that Goddard keeps, for instance, the Rapid Place Deployment Office catalog, the RSDO catalog. And uh, so we're in that catalog. And, and so somebody like, for instance, somebody who's a, uh, an investigator for a, a, new, a new satellite, they're going to say, I want to go investigate, uh, have a satellite that, that looks at uh, the water vapor content over the ocean. I don't know. I'm making something up. And they go, oh, we need a satellite you know, bus to go do that, that they can fold their instrument on. So they come up with this real new fancy you know, water vapor instrument. And then they say, well... Okay, we gotta we gotta fly that on something. Where are we gonna fly it on? Well, they pull out this catalog and they open it up and they say, "Oh, we could buy this thing from Northrop Grumman called the Eagle Two. That'd be really cool. That looks like that'll work." So they'll call Northrop Grumman and get a bid. You know, so that's what I'm working on today. Kind of the extended product line, uh, kind of riding on the, a little bit of riding on the coattails of the, the successes that we've had, uh, specifically with Elcross. Just just curious. Earlier, I mentioned the Earth observing one satellite and the fact that it's. Uh, well past its uh, expected time, its mission time, and that it's had no reboots. Huh? Um, what kind of news do you hear about other satellites? Like, uh, I don't know the exact number to date. I've kind of lost track, but a year over a year ago, I think MRO had like five or so at, at some point then yeah. as far as reboots. Is that yeah, something they, you hear about with other satellites? Um, I, You know, I actually try and keep my finger on the pulse of things like that because uh, generally, somebody's going to go off and investigate and figure out what the heck happened. And uh, they're going to come back and say, well, we found that there's this certain kind of a software 
flaw or a fault in the hardware that causes these kinds of things, and here's how we worked around them. And I kind of grab those, you know, investigative reports and I stick them away in a little inventory of uh, good to know things in the future, you know. So yeah, MRO had had some issues with uh, the way that some memory was, uh, uh, I think, being formatted, and uh, they they uploaded some new uh, some new software to it, and uh, they got it um, back up and running. Uh, one of the one of the Mars rovers had a had a significant problem when they when they first sent them up there. One of the uh, I don't remember it was Spirit or Opportunity, and they had issues with uh, formatting the flash memory. And um, they actually had uh, some corrections that they had to send up to the way that the memory was being uh, stored, uh, formatted. Um, so yeah, I, I try and you know grab those grab those official reports and squirrel them away. So if somebody says, "Hey, we see this problem on the satellite," I'm going to go, "Wait a minute, I heard something about it before." And I go ruffling through my files on my computer and go, "Here it is. I knew I read that." <laughs> so I do try and keep a track of those things. Uh, knock on wood, none of the satellites that I'm that I've ever worked on have ever had those kinds of errors. Um, so you know we've we've had uh, good engineering and good luck on those things. Um, EO one has actually never rebooted. I don't think um, the the WMAP probe had actually ever rebooted either. Uh, it recently was retired. They had mapped the um, they were mapping the background radiation of the universe, and they had mapped it 18 times. And basically, there was no value really doing it a 19th time. Uh, and so they retired the satellite and put it in a, a parking orbit out around the sun. Um, it was actually at the same place in the sky where the James Webb Space Telescope was going to go. So they did have to vacate that uh, location as well as, you know, it was just time to retire the satellite. So uh, they put it in a parking orbit. Although, interestingly, they were actually, they were actually proposing to um, dispose of the satellite by crashing it into the moon. <laughs> so there would have been two satellites that I had worked on. Both would have crashed into the moon. Um, but they couldn't get the authorization to do that in time before they ran out of money to do the planning that they needed to do in order to make it happen. So they eventually just said, well, we just... No, it's not going to happen. We'll just have to put it in this parking orbit. Can you contrast uh, modern-day operating systems versus some of the software that, that you've worked on that strikes me as being something that has to be very, very frugal with resource utilization and, and how things are run? Can you contrast yeah. those two? Oh, yeah. For instance, you know, I'm sitting here at a uh, – I'm, I'm talking on a computer – that has, uh, I think I've got uh, 16 gig of RAM in here. Uh, I'm running on a uh, 3 gigahertz uh, i7 quad-core processor that, you know, if I bring up my taskbar and I look at my, you know, performance, it shows me that I've got eight cores, hyper-threaded cores are currently running, right? And I'm, you know, I'm running the newest Windows 7 operating system. The operating system that we use on satellites, uh, that that we use on satellites, not everybody uses this, but uh, most people do, is called VxWorks. Uh, VxWorks is put out by the Wind River Company, and it is an incredibly reliable operating system. And it's really just pretty bulletproof. And they're very, very uh, friendly with the space, you know, satellite community. 
um, the LCROSS flight software uh, starts out in double EEPROM and then and then goes into RAM and runs out of RAM when you boot the processor. In double EEPROM, it only takes one and a half megabytes. Okay? In RAM, it, it expands out and takes three and a half. I have 16 gigabytes on my phone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, the processor, the the basically the fastest uh, space qualified processor that I can buy today runs at 100 megahertz. That's also slower than my phone, right? So my whole flight software um, is actually smaller than Plants vs. Zombies. You know, <laughs> I mean, that kind of a thing. <laughs> when I describe to people that, you know, my flight software uh, is only one and a half or one and three quarters megabytes and, and runs on a 100 megahertz processor, oh, and the LCROSS software that was running on that 100 megahertz processor consumed 5% of the CPU. <laughs> I just get fear in the headlights looks from people like, what? <laughs> so, we, yeah, we tend to be really frugal. Um, but that's the mentality that, uh, you know, a finely crafted, you know, satellite software uh, tends to instill in people. Uh, you know, that way I can say, people say, well, what's going to happen if you, you know, if I need to run my attitude control software at, at uh, 10 times a second? I was like, eh, I'll take another 1% of the CPU, and I go, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Do you do you see that as a problem though right now with with all the other programs that that are being written you know out there in the commercial market you, you know it, it just seems to me every every program I run is a memory hog, uh, but I remember too where it was the more elegant programmer that would come up with solutions that would only take you know a, a very very minute amount of uh, CPU space to go ahead and run and and all that and just trying to be less verbose in the programming. Yeah, I haven't grown up in the area era of uh, you know a, a processor that's only running at one megahertz instead of you know three gigahertz, and you know maybe it only have an eight K RAM available or something like that. Um, I do tend to I think uh, I think about things differently. Um, you know, I want that. I I love elegant solutions. It's one of the reasons I got into programming in the first place. I, I get I'm 51 years old. I've been programming since I was 15. I still get a rush out of seeing programs run right especially running right the first time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did it. Look at this. This is really cool. You know, and maybe a little thing, maybe just some little looper or something that's running, you know, running in the, in the flight software. And the whole flight software, you know, is pretty neat. Uh, we've inherited that from Goddard. I didn't write all that from scratch. You know, it's, it's got, you know, hundreds of man years in it kind of a thing, kind of like the, uh, <laughs> kind of like the MCP from Tron. But uh, just... Just writing a small, elegant new thing that's going to go in that, I, I, get, I get a rush out of that. I still do. Um, and even though, like I said, even though I'm, uh, I'm 50, 51 years old, um, I'll be a technical software engineer uh, until they, you know, carry me out of the office in a pine box. Uh, it's just really, uh, it's really what I'm best at. It's what I make. The, I, I make the company a lot of money doing that, and it just really makes sense. They, they kind of pull out the management chair for me a couple of times, and I went, no, you can just shoot me first. <laughs> so here's a question. How do uh, young people today get from point A to point B where you're at, where you're just doing the absolute best thing you can imagine that you love the most? How do you get from school days to there? It's interesting because I started out doing something completely different than what I'm doing today. I went to uh, college to actually be a musician, and then I changed over to being 
uh, a major in uh, Christian education, and I ended up being a satellite system software engineer. <laughs> so I took a really weird road to get here, but along the way, I studied everything I could, you know, basically put my hands to. I studied photography. I studied drawing. I studied audio engineering. I was a telecommunications minor. Uh, I did radio and television production. Um, I worked with uh, the Center for Instructional Services at the college and, uh, and held cue cards for people doing educational videos. I did all kinds of stuff. And do what comes to hand. Be really good at it. Learn something new all the time. Uh, I'm 50 years old. I've never stopped learning. In fact, I, I decided uh, a couple of years ago, but just like two years ago, I didn't know enough physics. I didn't know enough electrical engineering. So I started watching videos from MIT. But I, I learned how I learn. And one of the ways that I learn really well is to watch those kinds of things. So watching and reading, learning things that are very visual, um, that's how I learn. Uh, and, I, and I love learning. And, and uh, I just can't get enough of it. I, I read, you know, I read technical manuals. You know, in my spare time, I'm one of those guys. So, you know, how do you get from a high school student to satellite flight software engineer? Do what you love. Uh, you know, find something interesting to work on. Uh, I didn't do. I didn't start doing satellites until I was 35. Uh, so it's not like I set out to do this, and I didn't do it all my life, and I never even really thought about trying to do it. It. it I was good at what I did, and somebody said, hey, why don't you come do this, and, and drug me along to go do something new, and I was like, that sounds like fun, look at that, you know, so I, it's, it's kind of hard for me in some ways to, to say, take this path, learn these things, go to this school, no, actually really no, find out what you really want to do, what you're really passionate about, and work on that, and, and it'll take you somewhere that you like to be regardless of whether you ever get to this place or not, you know, I, yeah, we could use more flight software engineers. They're really hard to find. It's a really great career. You get to work with some of the smartest people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I work with, I, my goal, yeah, I have two goals in life. One is to work with people who are smarter than me, and the other one is to play music with musicians who are better than I am. So uh, I've been very fortunate in both of those goals. I've been able to do that quite a bit. I think it's time for the final question, which yep. if you've listened to the show, you know that we always ask, we always save the hardest question of all for last. Are you ready? I'm ready. If people want to learn more about you, where can they go, or is there anything else that you would like to promote? They can go to uh, untiedmusic.com. They can also find me on Twitter. I'm Vax Headroom on Twitter. At my, my Twitter feed is exclusively, pretty much exclusively space. So if you want to find out space news, uh, what's going on, interesting tidbits, find me on, find me on Twitter on uh, uh, Vax Headroom. And one thing what I like to also tell people, go grab a pair of binoculars. Go look at Jupiter. It's very bright in the sky right now. You can see the moons of Jupiter with a pair of binoculars at night. There's a, there's a fantastic vista up there uh, of opportunities for, for exploration, for exploitation, uh, there's incredible resources on the moon. Uh, there's infinite abundant energy up there, just a couple hundred miles up. Find out what's up there. Find out how you can be involved because you can be involved. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a, a six-year-old who likes rockets, 
or a 50-year-old truck driver uh, who gets the chance to drive through the Midwest and, and get out of a truck stop and, and look up at the stars at night. Do it. Be involved. Point out to your fellow truck drivers, look, that's Jupiter up there. People go, wow, really? Oh, yeah, there's a satellite on the way to Jupiter called Juno. Really? Yeah. It's cool. Great way to end this. Great way. Yes. So thank you very much, Emery Stagmer, for making your first appearance finally on Talking Space. We were really glad to have you with us. Oh, great. It's been a lot of fun, guys. (laughs) We've had a blast here. I know that, Emery. Thanks a whole bunch. All right. Once again, Emery, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. That gentleman is is just that, a gentleman and a scholar. I was honored to have him on the show tonight. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. It's been a real treat. I met Emery at a tweet up in D.C. Uh, a year and a half, a little bit over that ago, and uh, was fascinated to, to talk with him and been looking forward to this evening ever since. Indeed. We have so much audio that isn't even included Oh, I hated to cut it out, but we had to. <laughs> oh, but thank you so much for joining us, Emery. Thank you, guys, and thank you as well, the listeners. And we're going to end the show with a very special song called Water on the Moon, recorded and created by some of the members of the L-Cross team. We will put a link to the entire song in the show notes for you to listen to. But in the meantime, as always, have a great Five, day, night, evening, four, or whatever it may three. be. Where you are. Finding water on the moon